We already know that our agricultural activities produce some of our greatest environmental impact. Yet some sort of agriculture is needed to produce food because we are beyond hunting and gathering. World population is expected to reach 9.8 billion by the year 2050 and it is projected that agricultural production will have to increase 60 to 70 percent above current levels in order to feed that population. This essentially places us in a conundrum. If we expand our current agricultural activities, we continue to destroy the environment that is vital to our survival. Yet if we do not find a way to increase food production, people will essentially starve. If you want to listen to the full story, then enjoy this episode on What's Cooking with Synthetic Meat. Welcome to the Adventures in Sustainable Living podcast. Your host has lived an off-grid, sustainable lifestyle for over 20 years. His homestead is run on solar energy. He has an earth shelter greenhouse and produces much of his own food. And all of this takes place in the middle of the forest in Colorado. Now, let's join Patrick, the man that not only teaches the skills of sustainable living, but lives that life every day. Welcome back, everyone, to the Adventures in Sustainable Living podcast. This is your host, Patrick, and this is episode 64, which is called What's Cooking with Synthetic Meat. As mentioned above, it's now quite obvious that our agriculture activities are by far one of the greatest drivers of the detrimental environmental changes that are so much a part of the news these days. But with a growing world population, we obviously need to produce food to survive. Yet if we keep doing what we're doing, we are going to completely destroy the environment that is vital to our survival. But if we do not find ways to increase food production in step with our growing population, sooner or later, people will starve. But finding ways to improve the efficiency of agriculture is really truly nothing new. And I'm sure that most of you are familiar with the term GMO, which is a genetically modified organism. For the average consumer, what this most commonly refers to is crops that are developed through genetic engineering, also known as just biotechnology. And the purpose of this is to take a desirable or a beneficial trait of a plant that is found in nature and then transfer that to a crop plant or simply to change or enhance an existing trait in a plant that is being developed. Doing so thus enhances agricultural production and thus the advent of GMOs. DNA was first discovered in 1950s and genetically engineered plants were first field tested in the 1980s. The first genetically modified food was actually approved for release with a particular type of tomato that was introduced in 1994. Now the reason for all of this trouble was to develop crops that had a resistance to drought, disease, and insects 
and to develop plants that had a tolerance to herbicides that allowed for better weed control, but also to develop crops with enhanced nutritional concept. And the most common GMOs that we see are soybean, maize, cotton, canola, and alfalfa. And today, GMOs comprise 90% of the soy, cotton, and corn that is grown in the United States. But of course, there have always been concerns over the consumption of GMOs. Concerns such as allergies and cancer and even pesticide residues. And what is interesting, though, is that the use of GMOs have actually not enhanced crop production after all. And what has happened is that weeds have now become resistant to the herbicides, which has, of course, led to increased use of stronger, more toxic pesticide combinations. New GMO combinations seem to only compound the problem, and this of course leads to even more pesticide residues in the foods that we consume. But GMOs are not truly the focus of this episode. I bring it up just to because this is a concrete example of genetic engineering that's commonly known to all of us. It is also a very good example of how our efforts to manipulate our environment produces even further problems. Which brings me to yet another challenge that we have related to agriculture. After much research and reading of numerous articles, I do not believe there is any area of agriculture that has a greater impact than that of meat production. And furthermore, over all other meats, beef tops the list of having the greatest greenhouse gas emissions and environmental impact. As Americans, on average, we consume over 19 billion pounds of beef annually, which works out to be about 57 and a half pounds per person. Now, that may sound like a lot, but there are countries where people consume even more than we do. So presently, we sit in fourth place for the most beef consumption per capita in the global community. Which of course brings up the subject again of how are we going to perform this balancing act between increased food production and conservation of the environment. So far, conversion to more of a plant-based diet seems to be the most beneficial thing to do. However, that is not the complete answer because there is an additional challenge. Even if meat consumption is decreased in developed countries in order to mitigate environmental concerns, the global meat consumption will continue to increase simply because consumers are unwilling to decrease their meat consumption in particular in developing countries such as China, India, and Russia. There is an increased middle class in these countries, and they, of course, just like us, want luxury products such as meat, cheese, dairy, as well as other animal-related products. And truly, the livestock industry is attempting to address this issue with the realization that animal farming must produce larger quantities of not only high-quality, 
but also affordable milk, meat, and eggs. Yet the production of these products must also address environmental concerns, must be economically viable, socially responsible, and take into consideration animal welfare, climate change, less use of antibiotics, and of course, sustainability. Fortunately, there are actually some very smart people searching for more efficient means of protein production to sustain our growing global population while also addressing our current challenges. There are some amazing alternative agricultural techniques that are indeed promising. And as I mentioned, some of those in my last episode, One Simple Thing Can Change the World. And one of those things that could be an answer is what is called cell cultured meat or meat that is grown in the laboratory or synthetic meat. Advocates of this emerging technology believe this could be the answer for consumers that want to be more responsible yet do not want to change their diet. So what I want to do is just objectively explore this possibility of lab-grown meat. How is it made? Is it ethical? Does it have less of an environmental impact? And can production actually be scaled to meet the demands of a growing population? Is this really the answer? Or are we just attempting once again to use technology to manipulate natural processes to our advantage without addressing our underlying human flaws that got us in this conundrum in the first place. Hannah Rutzler, an Austrian nutrition scientist, literally made history in 2013 when she became the first person to taste meat that was grown in a lab instead of a pasture or a factory farm. The meat was developed by Dr. Mark Post and colleagues at Maastricht University in the Netherlands. Dr. Post and his colleagues essentially pioneered a proof of concept for cultured meat by producing the first hamburger patty grown directly from cells. So what proof of concept means is it's a demonstration in principle with the aim of verifying that a particular concept or theory has practical potential. So typically, proof of concept is small or and may or may not be complete. So in other words, they simply prove that it could be done. Now, if you truly think that is far-fetched, get a load of this. A company called Supermeat opened a laboratory restaurant in Tel Aviv in order to test the reaction of consumers to their chicken burger. But the world's first commercially sold cell cultured meat occurred in December 2020 at a restaurant in Singapore and that meat was manufactured by the US company called Eat Just. So what this means is that cultured meat is slowly hitting the consumer marketplace but at this point the bulk of efforts have been focused on the most common meats consumed in developed countries, which are beef, pork, and chicken. However, there are companies that also focus on elk, 
lamb, bison, grouper, as well as other seafoods. So what I'm saying here is that this technology is very real and the production process is constantly evolving and is driven by multiple companies, research institutions, and even big government. So where does cell cultured meat come from and how is it produced? Cell cultured meat is grown in vitro, which is a Latin term that simply means within the glass. This simply means that the meat is grown outside of a living organism and in a laboratory dish. The meat is cultured from what are called stem cells. So beef is cultured from beef stem cells, chicken from chicken stem cells, etc. Stem cells are essentially the building blocks of the body. All other cells in the body with specialized functions are derived from stem cells. Under appropriate conditions in the body or in the laboratory, stem cells divide to form additional cells that are called daughter cells. Daughter cells can either become new stem cells or they differentiate into cells with specialized functions such as heart muscle cells, liver tissue, nerve tissue, brain cells and blood cells, etc. In the human medical field, there is great interest in stem cell therapy for the potential of regenerative medicine, which strives to replace disease cells with healthy ones. And there is also great interest in the ability of testing new drugs. I do have some experience with stem cell therapy as a veterinarian, so the technology behind it is really truly quite interesting. Stem cells can be collected from a variety of tissues, such as fat, bone marrow, embryonic cord blood, as well as other sources. Once collected, stem cells are nurtured in a growth medium, and once they have proliferated sufficiently, researchers stimulate them in one manner or another, which is likely proprietary information, to differentiate into muscle or fat cells. This whole process, of course, completely bypasses the animal itself as well as the slaughter process required to obtain meat the traditional way. Advocates of lab-grown meat offer this as a sustainable alternative for consumers who want to be more responsible but do not want to change their diet. All we have to do is look at the proof of concept with this technology to believe that it is real. However, cultured meat is far from being ready for the grill and the industry still has a lot of challenges to overcome. So yes, it is possible to grow meat in the laboratory, but so far this production is limited to something similar to ground beef or, or chicken nuggets. Researchers are far from producing a one-inch thick steak that we can throw on the grill, and one of the biggest challenges is to reproduce the complex structure of various livestock muscle cells in a laboratory setting. So, the basic process goes something like this. Muscle biopsies are taken 
in order to harvest the stem cells, which will proliferate and differentiate into more muscle and fat cells. That growth process takes place in a very specific culture, which also requires the addition of hormones, nutrients, and growth factors. To this date, the best medium for growth is what's called fetal bovine serum, which comes from the blood of a dead calf. After the cells begin to proliferate, they form into these small little strands that are called myotubes, which are essentially the building blocks of muscle tissue. These myotubes are then placed into a ring structure and grow into a small piece of muscle tissue. This tissue is then placed on some sort of a scaffold structure in order to flood the tissue with nutrients and stretch them as a form of exercise in order to increase their size and protein content. The advantage to this process is that few animals are needed in order to produce a tremendous amount of meat. Mostly what is needed, of course, are lots of calves if fetal bovine serum is to be used, but to date that serum is extremely expensive. Additionally, part of the advantage of in vitro meat is to be slaughter free and that is not possible if you are using fetal bovine serum. One of the aims of the industry of course is to find other plant-based mediums that are considerably less expensive yet work as efficiently as fetal bovine serum. And once this problem has been solved, it may be possible to produce in vitro meat at a competitive price. Furthermore, live animals naturally produce growth factors and hormones, which are necessary for growth and maturation. Cell cultures need the same types of growth factors and hormones in order to grow. And the challenge at this point is to produce those compounds on an industrial scale and to ensure there are no short or long-term effects on human health. So although this technology is continuing to evolve, there are a number of limitations in the industry. Things such as the cost of fetal bovine serum, finding an appropriate scaffold material in order to produce thicker cuts of meat, and scaling up the process in order to meet potential demands. Consequently, the industry is still a long way from producing what we would consider real meat, which contains a variety of tissues other than simply muscle fibers. But then there's the question, of course, of health concerns, of which there are truly a lot of unknowns. Advocates of cell-cultured meat lay claim to increased safety of their product due to the meat being produced in a laboratory environment that is fully controlled by the producers and the engineers. There is no potential contamination at the time of slaughter, no risk of encountering E. coli, Salmonella, or Campylobacter, which are responsible for millions of illnesses annually. But while this isolated environment may prove to be partially beneficial, it's also quite clear that manufacturers are never in complete control of anything. Mistakes of oversight occur frequently 
in any production process, and these can lead to some fairly drastic health consequences. And all you have to do is follow the news about the meat industry to appreciate that this sort of thing happens frequently even today. People are people, and people are going to make mistakes. Another potential positive aspect of cell cultured meat is that animals are not raised in a confined environment. And consequently, there is no need for vaccinations or antibiotics. And all that being said, there is virtually no way to determine all of the potential health risks of cultured meat. Due to the tremendously high number of cell divisions and multiplications, in the trillions that is, there is no doubt going to be some sort of dysregulation of some cell lines, which is exactly what happens with cancer cells. And furthermore, these types of changes in cell lines have potential as of yet unknown effects on cell structure and possibly in human metabolism when cultured meat is consumed. Another concern, of course, is the potential use of antibiotics during the culture process. And this can be used to prevent or clean up any contamination. And if this happens, it certainly weakens the argument for lack of antibiotics as being a positive aspect of cultured meat. And furthermore, it has been suggested that nutritional content in cultured meat can be controlled by adjusting fat content. But as of yet, no effort has been made to control the addition of various micronutrients, such as vitamin B12 and iron, which are beneficial to our health. And additionally, no one knows if the way in which cultured meat cells are organized, if they are able to potentiate the beneficial effects of micronutrients. So obviously, there are still a tremendous number of unanswered questions for this evolving technology. But proponents of this technology also promote cell-cultured meat as having less environmental impact. But then we have to look at the impact of this type of meat production relative to standard farm production. So the argument against standard farm production of meat has always been that of massive greenhouse gas emissions, the use of massive amounts of water, and intensive land usage. The production of cultured meat is supposed to show a reduction in all of these factors, at least according to the advocates of this industry. But is this really the case? So let's look at all three factors here. First is greenhouse gas emissions. It is true that livestock are responsible for a significant portion of greenhouse gas emissions on a global scale, and in particular methane. Consequently, the reduction of methane emissions is one of the potential benefits of cultured meat production. But on the contrary, the primary greenhouse gas produced by cultured meat is actually CO2, and that is due to the use of fossil fuels to warm the cell cultures. So in the end, there is no consensus regarding the comparison 
of lab-grown meat versus standard meat production in regards to greenhouse gas emissions. We already know that CO2 accumulates and persists in the atmosphere longer than methane, and CO2 is the primary gas emitted due to cultured meat production. As far as water usage goes, it's long been stated that it takes 15,000 liters to produce one kilogram of beef. But the reality is that 95% of this water is used to grow the crops that are fed to the animals. And one study looked at true water usage of meat production and concluded it was really truly closer to 550 to 700 liters of water to produce a kilogram of meat and that seems to be a much more accurate figure. And as of yet, there is no definitive conclusion on whether or not cultured meat does in fact use less water. However, one other factor to consider is that of water contamination. So if we look at the industrial processes necessary to produce the growth factors and hormones, the wastewater discharge and spills into the environment are inevitable. While cultured meat may in fact use less water, there is the possibility of even more environmental contamination. So that leaves us with land usage. So of course, the production of cultured meat requires the use of a lot less land. However, this does not account for the benefits that livestock actually provide for the environment such as helping to maintain soil fertility due to manure, the addition of organic material, nitrogen, and phosphorus. And this, of course, helps to maintain some biodiversity. So, so far in this episode, we've kind of covered uh, an explanation of this industry and this technology and how it's evolving and how it works. And we've also looked at some of the challenges of the industry as far as producing a an acceptable product. We've looked at health concerns, environmental impact, and now I want to take a look at some of the ethical issues in animal welfare. I think it's pretty safe to say that we're all familiar with the animal welfare issues that are a major concern in our modern society. And proponents of cultured meat have already labeled it as a victimless meat. Although this is not really true if calves have to be killed in order to produce the culture medium. And furthermore, the muscle samples needed to obtain the stem cells have to be collected and that requires biopsy techniques. Plus I can only imagine that one chicken can survive only so many biopsies before it is slaughtered and another one is put on the biopsy table. So regardless, I question whether or not it is even possible to truly produce victimless meat unless a single culture is kept for eternity, which is of course unlikely. But in the end, there is truly no doubt that the number of animals slaughtered would be greatly reduced. But underneath this budding industry, there is yet another potential victim of circumstance. And that is the plight of the small farmer. Much like a large supermarket chain moving into a small community and pushing the 40-year established mom-and-pop supermarket out of business 
larger scale meat production does the same for the small farmer. Furthermore, the livestock industry serves multiple other valuable functions. Livestock provides much needed income to some of the world's most rural communities and livestock not only produces meat, milk, and eggs, but also offers fiber, wool, and leather. This also provides a significant source of income for many of the rural communities around the world. And there would also be a loss of so many cultural services, social events, and open markets. And I can personally assure you that there is nothing more interesting and stimulating than attending an indigenous market in South America where the locals are selling their products. In the end, after researching this topic extensively, I like to sort of compare the issue of synthetic meat to that of GMOs. 26 years after the introduction of the first GMO product, we now realize that perhaps the advocates of these products were wrong in so many ways. Increased crop yields have not happened. Super weeds are now developing which require the use of stronger compounds with increased toxicity. That means the pesticide residues in our food that the USDA deems as acceptable possess even greater toxicity. And now that the world is truly on the brink of a crisis situation, which is only going to worsen with time, there are a lot of scientists, researchers, universities, and governments attempting to produce an acceptable alternative protein in order to feed our growing population and concurrently reduce our environmental impact. As it stands now, the industry has a lot of challenges to overcome just to produce a decent cultured meat product. And some of those products are already being tested in foreign markets, but there is still legislation that needs to be put in place, ethical issues to overcome, and then of course, the hurdle of public perception. But we only need to look at the huge growth in the market of milk alternatives, as well as the recent growth in plant-based meat alternatives to appreciate that the general public is seeking alternative sources to these sorts of proteins. From an environmental perspective, so far there is not a lot of evidence to prove that cell cultured meat actually has less of an impact than standard farming practices. Thus far, that conclusion is solely based on speculative analysis. That said, this technology is still in its infancy and will continue to evolve with new discoveries and advances that will no doubt optimize production, quality, and efficiency. But it is still a long time before we will routinely be dropping lab-grown meat into our shopping carts and going home to have a tasty barbecue. But despite all the potential advantages to some of this technology, underneath all of this, there is yet another flaw that is staring us in the face that we are failing to address. For example, lab-grown meat is being hailed as the best solution to the factory farming of meat. This type of meat production is bad for human health given the amount of antibiotics pumped into the animals 
as well as the environment the animals are forced to tolerate until their day of slaughter. In contrast, lab-grown meat need not, need not have any of these concerns. And once the technology is perfected, lab-grown meat will likely be indistinguishable from real meat, will be cheaper to produce and purchase. So let's say we all switch to lab-grown meat for the sake of our health, the reduced expense, and for the environment. But the underlying problem is that we are doing it for our own sake and not really for the sake of the animals. We are thus failing to address our own moral issues. The same concept applies to many other technological or economic solutions to solve a moral crisis. Let's say, for example, we develop a clean, cheap, and renewable energy source. That method is accepted and adopted, and we completely halt climate change. That would, of course, be fantastic. But again, we fail to address the underlying issue. Humanity failed long ago to address our overconsumption, our wastefulness, our blatant misuse of our resources related to our take-make-and-dispose attitude. We have long since lost our respect for the natural world. We have known about the potential effects of climate change for over a hundred years, and now we take action only when it literally means our own survival. We continue to ignore the underlying concepts of sustainability and carrying on with our cavalier attitude to the plight of future generations. We continue to use money and technology to solve our problems instead of addressing our own moral flaws that got us in this situation in the first place. And without addressing those failures in basic human nature, it just leaves us open to committing more atrocities. Truly, I do not expect anyone to live the way I do. Off the grid, hauling and purifying my own water, growing much of my own food and producing much of my own meat. But I can truthfully say that the land I purchased 25 years ago remains entirely in its natural state with the exception of about maybe two acres out of 46. And this is because as the trees cycle through, I am provided with abundant firewood. There are numerous wild plants that can be harvested for food. There is clean water and plenty of wildlife if I choose to go hunting. So in other words, the land left in its natural state supports my sustainable activities. And despite all of this, I will be the first to admit that certain aspects of our lives are not exactly convenient. But I am happy to trade a little inconvenience for more personal security and sustainability. I truly believe that we are on the edge of seeing rapid changes in our world. And at this point, it is hard to say whether that will be good or bad. That is yet another reason to adopt a more sustainable lifestyle because it may end up being your best security blanket for an uncertain future. But do it because it is the right thing to do, and not just because it has come down to being your only choice.
because to do so is to fail to address the underlying moral issue that got us here in the first place. So in the end, I know that this is very much of a controversial topic, and I truly hope that my listeners have enjoyed this episode. And and if you have enjoyed this episode, as well as others that I have produced, I would truly appreciate it if you would take the time to leave me with a review, and that way I will know just how I'm doing these days. And additionally, if you want to subscribe to my blog, Off-Grid Living News, and my podcast, Adventures in Sustainable Living, that would be fantastic. So that is it for this week, folks. I will see you again next week. Again, I hope you have enjoyed this episode. And until next week, just remember to take the time and effort to embrace these concepts of sustainability because in our ever-changing world, it is the concepts of sustainability is how we are going to build a better future.